Welcome to her fullest potential. The community of women looking to minimize stress, maximize success, and live a more joyful life. It is time to rise together and start building the world we dream to live in. It starts with you, and it starts here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. Our guest is a health and wellness coach with over 12 years of experience working as a psychotherapist and trauma expert. She empowers women to break free from seeking approval and hustling for self-worth in order to tap into their personal power, align with authenticity, and grow a backbone to embody the badass woman they are meant to be. She is a survivor turned thriver, as well as a certified provider of the work, Dr. Brene Brown and Marissa Peer. So welcome Emily Arth to today's show. I'm super excited to have you a friend of many years now. Thank you so much for having me. Knowing you personally, I know you have a deep wealth of knowledge about a lot of different topics when it comes to trauma, health, and wellness. So can you just start with telling us your personal story into how you got into the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I would love to. So my history, long story short, I am I was born into a family that I would say had very high standards. My dad is a surgeon. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. She was very, you know, domestic. She was super like Martha Stewart wannabe style person. And so there was always like really high expectations in my life. And I was very involved in a lot of different things, like especially art related things, Um, whether that be I was in numerous types of dance and I played the piano and I always did theater in the summers. And so I was busy all the time and sort of growing up, I learned to perform. Basically, I, I learned how to be a pleaser Um, because of course there were really high standards in my household, but also there were problems in my household. Like I I have a mother who has untreated mental illness. You know, I have a dad who never really challenged her on that or encouraged her to, to heal that or work on that. And so there was, you know, emotional and psychological trauma that was taking place. You know, I didn't know that at the time. And, um, and I also have a sexual abuse history. And so by the time I became a teenager, I was very anxious and depressed and I had a lot of anger and I didn't know why, you know, I I had a sense that it was irrational, uh, but I still was acting it out and playing it out with my family. And so then when I went to college, uh, it actually was not until I was in my master's degree for social work. And I was sitting in my clinical theories class and we were learning about the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was just like looking at this list and I was just thinking, that's me, that's me, that's me. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm traumatized. Like, and for the first time in my life, I had this sense of there's nothing wrong with Emily as a person, Emily has a pathology that's been caused by some of her earlier life events. And of course, you know, in college, they were like, do your own work first. You have to heal yourself first. You're going to be working with other people to help them. So as soon as I had this realization that started me on a long journey of my personal healing, 
um, which did initially start with going to see a psychotherapist, an amazing woman who had been doing that work for about 30, 35 years. And, um, and I was so disconnected still from myself that when I first went to see her, I thought I was there to work on insecurity about my weight. I thought I was overweight and that was the problem. And, you know, as you probably already know, a lot of times when we're starting these journeys, like the way in or the door in is so far removed from the actual root cause of what we need to be working on. And so, yeah, so I started learning about like emotional needs. And I remember my therapist asking me, what do you need emotionally? And I just sat there with absolutely nothing in my mind for like five minutes until I just said to her, like, I have no idea what I need. And so that was really the beginning of, I would say, this journey of like coming home to Emily and actually getting to know like, what does Emily need and how does Emily meet her needs? And so as a therapist, then that kind of led me down this road of wanting to be a trauma healer, both both because I was already exploring this personally, but also because I was so passionate about bringing hope to a population of people that experienced what I experienced. And um, over time, that led me to, you know, learning about resilience, this ability to bounce back from difficult life events. And that really, those of us who are dealing with the problems that I was dealing with are just dealing with the fact that we don't know what we need to do to be resilient. You know, I say it's like a, it's more of a learning curve, right? Than it is a flaw in who you are. And that's what led me over time to, like I said, I, I was a therapist for 12 years and then recently transitioned to being a health and wellness coach. Um, because I really now am in this place where I want to completely detach from the identity of the victim. And I want to encourage other people to completely detach from that as well. So that's kind of the story of how I got here. There's a couple of things you said in that story that really caught my attention. And so before we dive more deeply, I want to ask maybe a more surface level question, but as you said, you were sitting in that class and they're reading off these symptoms or signs, signposts that might direct that diagnosis. And do you mind just sharing what some of those were? Yeah. You know, just things like feeling anxious. And at that time, for sure, I just had like unexplainable anxiety. I had social anxiety. Like, I mean, I still was going out, but I just felt so panicked internally doing that. Um, a lot of self-criticism, um, feelings of depression, sadness, guilt, shame, uh, trouble with focusing, just like maintaining attention day to day, kind of like ADHD type stuff. Uh, dreams, you know, having, having bad dreams. I wouldn't say I really had nightmares, but you know, I would, I would have distressing dreams and things like that. And also rumination on past events. So not like a full on flashback, but just like when something would happen in life that would trigger me, it would cause me to remember things from my past that had happened. And I just never really realized how much time I was spending in that space doing that. Um, also, you know, just like numbing, really, I was numbing a lot with just like food and honestly over-functioning socially. Uh, I was the type of person who like, I could go to work and be in constant communication with people all day long. 
And then as soon as I got off the clock, I immediately had to find out who was available for me to socialize with. And that actually took me years to realize like, wow, I'm avoiding myself and being alone with myself. And so avoidance was, you know, one of those symptoms Um, as well as, you know, I had had thoughts of suicide in my lifetime. I never attempted that, but I definitely thought at times that it would just be easier, you know, if I could not be here. So those were some of the, the main things that stood out. Yeah. Part of the reason why I ask is because, you know, as professionals who've worked in the trauma field, we understand that it's not so black and white. It's not, you know, the big quote, the big T traumas. And it's not because you can't sleep and you're constantly having flashbacks and you can't function, but in reality it can be, and kind of is something that is all pervasive in our culture. And especially I think it kind of has its own flavor, but also maybe not, you're welcome to disagree, but especially in the high-performing culture and the people pleasing and the hyper-awareness of the external and everything around you to where you were in that moment when she asked, what do you need emotionally? I have no idea. (laughs) I didn't even know I existed. I don't even want to hang out with myself because I don't know how to do that, which is the most innate natural thing in the world is to be in your own body, but how just the cultural context, especially for women in a high-performing culture, it can really break that sense of self Mm -hmm. and how, and the damage that that can cause. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and just like commenting off of that, you know, it, it would actually take me years after seeing that list of symptoms to even come into the realization of not just how disconnected I was from my emotional needs, but honestly, how disconnected I was from my joy, because everything I had been doing were things that I was told to do or that I was told were good for me to do. And they weren't bad things, but I had to go on a whole journey of actually discovering what authentically brings me joy in life? And I know that pleasure hormones and chemicals in the brain have an inverse relationship with the stress hormones in the brain. So like when cortisol is really high or stress hormones, like this dopamine oxytocin goes down. And so did you notice that there was kind of that inverse correlation that as maybe more of your trauma was healed, that you were able to access more of your joy? Or do you feel, because also the inverse is true as you practice feeling pleasure and joy and what makes you feel good that it can also lower the stress hormones and help to repair those trauma patterns. So I guess I'm just curious about your personal experience. And as somebody that integrates so much creativity into your work, how you see that play out with either yourself or your clients. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up like the chemistry behind trauma because all in my twenties, you know, I did have anxiety and depression. I was put on antidepressants. Um, And I just didn't realize that that basically was just numbing me further, the antidepressants. But, you know, when you don't know what healthy is, you don't really have a benchmark for healthy. So like a lot of times you feel improvement. You're like, I don't want to die. This is an improvement. Right. But you're not yet to that place where you're like, wait, this is what thriving feels like because you've never really had thriving before. So how do I even know what I'm shooting for? Basically. But anyways, I was anxious and depressed. They gave me this medicine and I was also taking birth control and I went off birth control a couple of times just to like give my body a sense of like, where are we at? And it took over a year for me to have a period. And I was like, something's wrong. I think there's something wrong with my hormones. And I told probably five different doctors, 
None of them listened to me. None of them would test my hormone levels. And so it wasn't until after I was 30 that I started having such swings during my cycle in my mood, I, I would be really doing great. And then I would just start crashing down into depression as I approached my period. And it was just a roller coaster ride. And so I finally found a doctor who does human hormone replacement. And when he tested my hormone levels, he said that I had almost zero estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, all the sex hormones. And he was like, so that's why you feel like absolute shit. Because like those, those regulate so many things in your body. And what I thought was really wild about this, tying it back to trauma, is that, of course, you mentioned cortisol goes up when we're in a distressed state. Well, a lot of people don't know that cortisol damages the endocrine system. So when you have a chronically elevated cortisol level, especially during development, you can sustain some serious damage to, you know, your pituitary, adrenals, thyroid, ovaries. And so once I realized that, of course, I started human hormone replacement and that corrected basically all of the physical stuff that I was dealing with for all of those years. And another layer of this with trauma is, you know, we say that the issues are stored in the tissues, meaning that the body, of course, holds the memory of the trauma. Well, my very first trauma was when I was five years old and my mother had placenta previa when she was pregnant with my brother. And I walked into the living room and she was bleeding out. She was literally had soaked beach towels between her legs. Well, when you're five, you have no idea like, what, where's this blood coming from? Why is my mom bleeding? You just think my mom's dying and she's pregnant. So how interesting that my body and my tissues were like, you know what we're not going to do? reproduce mm. because reproduction is going to kill us. So yeah, there's so many layers of our multi-dimensional being to consider when we're, yeah, when we're healing the trauma. Do you feel like you're sprinting just to keep up and left overwhelmed and exhausted by the demands of life? If so, you are not alone. Here, at her fullest potential, we show busy women how to reduce anxiety and still achieve their greatest successes. Because you perform at your best when you feel your best. We bring you Calm On Demand, a free training to help you shift out of surviving and into thriving on your own terms. We know you are meant for so much more. Head over to herfullestpotential.com to grab your copy today. Because we rise together. That is very interesting in regards to the reproduction and that experience and the correlation of those specific hormones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another thing you, that came up when you first shared your story was your studying and learning of resilience and really learning what that actually meant. And it's interesting that this came up today because twice this week, I've listened to people say, I'm tired of being resilient. I'm tired of being strong. I just want to stop. Like, and 
it's been this doorway for a conversation about what resilient actually means. Mm -hmm. So I have my input and my take, but I would actually love to hear from you. So according to you, (laughs) what does resilience actually mean and how does somebody cultivate that? Yeah. So, um, of course, according to Dr. Brene Brown, whose work is very much centered on resilience, she defines resilience as our ability to bounce back from difficult life events. And I expound upon that by kind of explaining that everyone is like a scale or a balance. And a person who's very resilient is very mindfully aware and sensitive to when that balance starts to tip in one direction or another. And if you have a high level of resilience, you also know the appropriate skills or tools to apply when your scale starts tipping in one way or another. And so someone with high resilience is very sensitive and knows how to intervene quickly when they start to get out of balance. Whereas somebody who's lacking resilience, you know, their scale is going to be totally cockeyed before they even notice that something's wrong. And then we're in a crisis and the intervention that it takes to get this back into balance is going to be much more than what it would take if I noticed with just a incremental change. Well, and something you mentioned earlier too is about health and thriving. And now if you don't actually know what health and thriving is, you kind of don't really know what you're shooting for. Mm-hmm. You might notice improvement, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're at a stage that one would really proclaim as healthy and thriving and with over overflowing vitality. And so I think I see the same pattern happen a lot with resilience is we think that, um, we think we're balanced. Well, I slept. Okay. I'm still doing it all. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't that be balanced? So how do you help people find what actually feels like that homeostasis or harmonized place for them. Yeah. I love that. Well, I kind of think of it like, um, like we need a new blueprint, right? Like if my old, old blueprint is crisis state, then how am I going to upgrade to resilience if I don't even have a blueprint for what that looks like? So, you know, the people that I work with, we, we have a lot of conversations about, I'll use anxiety versus intuition, for example. You know, I often work with people who are like, oh yeah, I'm highly intuitive. And then when they start describing to me what they are thinking is their intuition, I challenge them on, do we think that maybe that's anxiety? And what is the difference between anxiety and intuition? And how do we feel it in our body? You know, like for me, anxiety kind of shows up in the pit of my stomach and my stomach gets tense, you know, my neck and my shoulders get tense, which is very much the opposite of intuition, which is a grounded, quiet, certain voice, right? When I know intuitively that something's right for me, there's no questioning of it. It's just, it's just, yes, that's it. Whatever we need to do to go in that direction we're doing, because that is the true North that's aligned. And so I don't have that restriction in my body. I feel calm. I feel centered. I feel open. I feel eager when my intuition is speaking to me. Even if that means that once I commit to my intuition, I might have to face a challenge. Like my intuition might say, you need to leave this job. And once I hear that clearly and commit to it, yeah, then some anxiety might come up, right? It might be like, well, how are we going to make money? But that's a separate emotional experience, right? Than that more like resilient voice of intuition. 
So, yeah. So I think that that is um, important that we have those conversations where we really get nuanced about our feelings and what it feels like, and also exposing ourselves to people who are living now with a high level of resilience who didn't have that at some time, because those people are going to have a much clearer perspective on what these two imprints feel like in our body and our mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important correlation is intuition and resilience. I was also just reading something today of the importance of self-trust and how deeply valuable and necessary learning to trust yourself is, because if you don't trust yourself, then all you're doing is following the blueprint you were given or the roadmap you were given, which more often than not create some sort of dis-ease or tension or in your life because where you naturally want to be pulled is different than where you're allowing yourself to be pulled. You know, and it's kind of like the the intersection of self-trust, intuition or resilience, and also fear that lives in the body and unprocessed trauma and how they are interlinked. They are two sides of the same coin. And, you know, I know this, I've experienced this even with relationships. So I got out of a really bad relationship. And for a long time, it was like, I'm, I'm never dating anyone ever again. <laughs> Just that massive contraction, which of course a short, you know, was temporary. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about that dance or that balance of how to navigate, you know, leaning more into self-trust or finding your intuition when maybe fear gets in the way of actually hearing that voice? Yes. Yeah. Self-trust is so important because of course, trust is the foundation of all of our relationships, including our relationship with ourself. And, you know, if we've had a history where like me, for example, I, I had a narcissistic parent. And so as a child, I, you have to be with your parents. You don't have a choice. Right. And so you have to learn how to adapt to an unhealthy situation. And so in order to adapt to that, sometimes like in, in my situation, I, I had to play some like mind games with myself, right? And when I didn't feel loved, I had to tell myself I was because of this, this, and this reason, because in order to survive, you know, we, we need to feel loved. We need to feel cared for. And so when you get in a pattern like that for years and years of going against your own intuition, going against what your body is telling you to do, it breaks down your ability to trust yourself. And so I think that something that I don't hear talked about very much when it comes to rebuilding self-trust is the importance and the role of faith in doing that. Because again, if I'm going from an old blueprint to a new blueprint, there's going to be a period of jumping over a chasm into a new place that I've never been in before. And that feels scary, you know, to go like, well, I feel like I've been wrong a lot in the past and now I'm learning this new direction and I'm just going to jump in it and trust that I'm going to get better. You know, like that, that requires faith, at least initially, as well as making new decisions one day at a time. You know, I like use eating, for example, if you eat unhealthy your whole life, you're not going to just wake up one day and say like, oh, I believe I'm a healthy eater. It doesn't work that way. But if you commit, if you jump over a chasm and you go, okay, I'm going to work with a dietitian, whatever, I'm going to find out how to eat healthy, I'm going to make new choices one day at a time, then 
over time, maybe two years of doing that, the cumulative of effect is that one day you're going to wake up and you're going to go, you know, I do believe I'm a healthy eater now because I've made that many choices now that have convinced me that I am capable and trustworthy in that area. We have a, the power of 1% gains essentially is 1% improvement a day over a year ends up being about 30%. Yes. Uh, it's from atomic habits. <laughs> it's not right. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting and here. that kind of goes back to what you said about the person who was, or whoever said, I'm like tired of being strong. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, when you are making those initial changes and you're going through that, that period of really trying to detach from the old and move into the new, it can be really challenging to your strength. And so it's important for people at that part of the journey to remind them you haven't yet made this habitual in your life. That's why it feels like you have to be really strong to be resilient. But once you make this habitual, it's going to start to be second nature to you. It's not going to feel like a forced thing. Yeah. Essentially the brain doesn't want the unknown because it doesn't know if we'll survive. (laughs) It's like, would you rather stay with the community you've been with your whole life, even if it's a mediocre experience or go into the jungle alone? (laughs) I'm going to stay near the fire where the food is. Like I'm not going in there. Yeah. You know? (laughs) So it's a really deeply biological response to newness and uncertainty, but it's also unavoidable if we actually want to really have the life we want to live or even just participate in life at all. Um, Mm -hmm. So, okay, let's use this archetype because I think it's one that you and I can relate to. And a lot of my listeners can relate to of like the strong person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the one that can just hold it down, but is really tired and has hormonal problems and their endocrine system is damaged. I also have issues with my endocrine system as a result of prolonged stress is my personal assessment. So let's use that archetype. I know in my life, this I've had to learn this many times and especially being currently three weeks away from my due date, my first baby, this is super omnipresent and has been the entire pregnancy of what does it mean to be strong (laughs) and what does it mean to be resilient and leaning into deeper layers of softness Mm -hmm. and deeper layers of slowing down and Mm -hmm. deeper layers of surrender and quiet, super strong person, (laughs) the way they know how to deter, determine what is right the right direction for them mm-hmm. now has to change. So I'll give a personal example, just in my pregnancy. When I, fa- I had quarter one, I sat down, I had all my goals written out. I was like, yes, this year is going to be so great. And then I got pregnant. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't meet any of those goals. <laughs> and I told myself, Chelsea, you have to put your baby, your sanity and your business in order of priority, because if you don't actively choose that your sanity will go last. So yeah. you have to pick that. And so my business became last on those, that, that list of three. And it really forced me to change the way I made decisions and change the way that I evaluated and assessed what was the right next step. What is appropriate right now? Is it to get two more hours of work done because I really want to accomplish this goal or to take a nap and get that goal done in 2023. Mm -hmm. Whereas previously the previous blueprint in your language would have been like, screw the nap. You can sleep later. Just get it done. You know, just suck it up and get it done. So I'm just using this kind of as a a real life example of what you're talking about. That's super omnipresent in my life. But I was able to do that because I have previously practiced softening, Mm -hmm. slowing down, Mm 
So I was already a little bit familiar with that. So I had something to orient to kind of what you're saying in the beginning, like, if you don't know what healthy is, like, what are you striving for? So for the person that is maybe like, I am tired of being strong and I just want to stop holding it down. Like being told I'm resilient isn't a compliment anymore. I'm just exhausted. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to them to start identifying what that new way actually is when it comes to making decisions and making choices and actually identifying, Oh, that is my intuition or, Oh, this is not my intuition. Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that just right off the top of my head, what comes up is I do like to talk to people and introduce people to the idea of masculine and feminine energies And the fact that we both or that we all embody both of those energies of masculine and feminine, and that has nothing to do with sex, right? It's, it's literally just how we're interacting energetically with the world. And of course, the masculine being that goal directed, linear, forward driven steam engine (laughs) energy that we have. And then the feminine being the allowing energy, right? The inspiring energy, the the more meditative energy, the soft and nurturing energy. And so if we're truly valuing both of those energies in ourselves equally, then when we're in a place, like you said, where you're like, well, I had all these goals set and I was going to achieve all these things and check my list off. And then you realize, well, wait a second. Now life has introduced an opportunity for me to bring my masculine and feminine into balance by asking me to allow instead of to push and force and move forward. And so it's like asking myself, you know, do I need to use the strength to move forward right now? Or do I need to use the strength to allow right now? Because those are both strengths. They're just presenting in different ways. You know, and I would say for people who are feeling exhausted because they're like, I'm tired of being strong because I'm in my masculine energy too much because I'm pushing everything forward all the time too much. It's not about not being strong. It's about there's a whole other side to strong that you're not mastering. So how can we help you master feminine strength so that then you can discern in any situation what's out of balance? Am I being overly masculine? Am I being overly feminine? What do I need to bring myself back into balance? I think that's a great tool for when we spoke about resilience earlier in the episode, when you talked, I said, what does resilience mean to you? And you spoke about that balance of the balance being tipped. And then we talked about how it can be hard to identify. How do you even know when the balance, when that scale is in balance, (laughs) how do you know what it's tipping? And I think that's a really great resource to use to help identify and evaluate, you know, where am I in space and where am I in this world and Mm -hmm. in the way I'm interacting with my life. Yeah. Yeah. It's useful. And there's of course a lot more discussion now more than ever, I think about masculine and feminine energies, you know, for people who just want to start to learn about that. If you don't know anything about it. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I'll use language like output and input, which isn't so exact in the -hmm. translation, but it's kind of another way to think about it. Are you just outputting, 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 and not only quantity, but also quality. And -hmm. I think this is important when it comes to resilience is, you know, sure. I can rest on the couch, quote unquote, but if I'm scrolling on my phone, that input 
is a very short-term gain, but actually like drains me in the long term. So it's not only quantity of that input outfit or masculine feminine, but also the quality. Like, are you pushing really hard for something that makes you feel inspired or resentful? Right. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the action, but also how you're engaging with it, which is where the nuance comes in. Um, yeah. And I love that idea too, just of input and output, because, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that part of resilience is play, laughter, celebration. And so, you know, like when I'm working with college students, for example, I talk to them a lot about, please get in the habit of celebrating your successes now, because so many people go through college and it's just like, okay, that paper's done, that exam's done, next assignment, next group project. And we are outputting so much stuff at that time, but we're not inputting very much. And so sometimes that looks like going directly to a numbing agent, like getting blackout drunk, right? Or using drugs or something like that. Instead of going, wow, I just worked my butt off last week. What's a nice meal I can treat myself to? What's a fun social engagement I can have with my friends? How can I give to my soul to fill myself back up so that I can go do more output? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's where that, like, I'm tired of being strong. It's like, well, right. If you don't have any energy to give, you exhaust the tank, you exhaust yourself. And so therefore quote strength is very depleting. Yeah. But it's needed. We need strength. We need to be able to push forward, but we have to change the way we're doing it. I think collectively and individually, which is what you spoke really well too. And we need also, I think strength to hold, hold the line. Right. Like I was just talking to um, my partner the other night about the masculine and the difference between, you know, like say something's getting violent. Right. The difference between holding with strength, just holding a boundary versus that active like, oh, I'm going to get violent or I'm going to push back in return. And so I think that's more also of like a, a feminine trait to know that there's strength in just holding a line without even pushing it forward, like you taking time off to rest, that's mm-hmm. strength to hold a line. Which I think is super important when it comes to deepening your relationship with yourself. <laughs> yeah. Cause I know a lot of my own, you know, bullshit is like, Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's fine. But it's like, no, Chelsea, it's not. Stop doing that. <laughs> I right. love you. Don't do that. <laughs> Hold the line, Hold Chelsea. the line, yes. <laughs> like taking time off to rest, like months off, you know, and really making my goals very small. It's like, no, we're going to hold the line. We're going to keep holding it. Going to keep yep. holding it. Um, so as you just spoke about joy and celebration, play, I know, cre- let's talk about creativity. So why is creativity important, especially as an adult? Well, um, First of all, going back to trauma, creativity is in that frontal part of your brain where your resilience lives. So if you want to build resilience in your life, practicing creativity is an important part of act of training that part of your brain, basically. Um, But also creativity, I think it relates to self-trust too, because we have to be creative to learn to solve solution or to solve problems in a way that we haven't ever done before. Like when we were talking about like, oh, I've never been there before. Well, that taps into your creativity. 
It's like, will you allow yourself to be creative enough to reinvent parts of yourself? Yeah, because I think when we're, I actually used to teach elementary school. I used to be a school teacher. And I mean, we all are familiar with this model because most of us grew up in the school system of some way, shape or form, but it's very common to be told, open your book to this page, do these numbers, (laughs) odd numbers, Mm -hmm. even numbers. Here's the rubric to know that you get this grade, this grade, this grade, this grade. It's so linear and it's just spoon fed to you. Mm -hmm. And that clear container can be helpful for kids as they're learning and finding their way around the world, but it also really strips them of their creativity and it strips them of like challenging the status quo, which is why our education system has been essentially the same for like over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, I think that's a great point of if you feel confident in your ability to come up with a new idea and then also to try it, even if it doesn't work out to then come up with another idea and try it again. I think that is super important and a huge piece of being able to practice self-trust and creating that new blueprint. So I think one thing I'd love to hear your input on or hear you speak to is also the attitude behind creativity, not just engaging in creative pursuits, but the willingness to do so in a way that is joyful and playful and celebratory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, and that kind of goes into that more feminine energy, right? Of allowing, like, will I allow myself to express whatever wants to come out without judgment? Because I think that mastering self-love, I would say that it's kind of paradoxical in the sense that it is both finding yourself as well as creating yourself, right? It is both going inside and tapping into what resonates with me emotionally, but then allowing yourself to go outside and create a life that matches that resonance. And so people who are living very authentically, and of course we live in a time right now where there's more talk about authenticity than probably ever, right? Authenticity is a creative process. It's a process of allowing yourself to be what you are And believing that what you are is more than enough. Even though what you are is different from everyone else. And that requires courage, right? That's about that that new blueprint that I'm heading toward. It's like, I've never been here before. I don't know who this person is. What if people don't like this person? You know, it, it forces us to reorient our whole lives sometimes, which is a pretty radically creative process. I think you spoke really well to the common obstacles that people have, which is, is basically the courage to let it be messy. Yeah. So how do you help people overcome that? I know I can relate to that. I'm a very creative person, obviously running a business, you kind of have to be, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also am a musician and a dancer and, but so even so, even though I'm naturally creative, I fostered that a lot through my adulthood. I can still relate to that feeling of, oh gosh, that frozenness of, oh gosh, I hope people like this and then overthinking it and, mm-hmm. and just having to kind of wipe that away and try to drop back into creativity. So I'd love to hear how you help people move through that. Yeah. Well, I, I would say that the first thing I do for people who are just really terrified of being creative, of being judged or criticized is we just start in really simple ways to start tapping into our creativity. You know, even if that's just me having a conversation with you, 
and saying like, this is what I would like. What would you like? Let's say it's even something as simple as just like speaking what restaurant I want to eat at. Right. I mean, that's part of creating my reality is making choices. And so that's just like a very small way that we would start wading into that and and noticing what's coming up around it, um, as well as, you know, say if it's art or something like that, I have to incrementally start creating something and allowing myself to be witnessed in that creation, you know? So like if, if you're working with an individual therapist, well, say I have someone draw a picture of what shame feels like to them or what vulnerability feels like to them. And every single time I think that I've asked someone to do that, I always hear I'm not a very good artist. Like that's the standard response. And then my response is, well, it's a good thing. This isn't an art competition right? There, there are no rules here. So I make a very safe environment to create, right? I'm like, there are no rules here. You could literally draw a line on the paper and you would be correct in the assignment, right? There is no wrong way to do this. But that's an example of like, I'm, I'm giving someone the space to create safely um, and to feel those emotions that, like you said, naturally come up, even when you've been creating for a long time. But I think that the more you allow yourself to create things in life, like say you're baking a cake and it's not perfect, but you're still going to give it to the person for their birthday. You're going to allow yourself to feel the vulnerability of thinking in my head, like, wow, that's not really what I wanted it to be, but it's still an act of love. Right. And then you're going to get to receive the person saying like, oh, my gosh, you made me a cake. Like, I feel so loved. Thank you so much. And so through those little interactions, we build more and more certainty in our ability to create without being crippled by fear, even though there is always going to be fear as an intrinsic part of being courageous. I really love what you just said, pretty much everything of what you just said. <laughs> and as a nervous system geek, you know, immediately I'm thinking of, oh, the safe space you create and, um, and how that plays into the central nervous or the social engagement system and the social nervous system and how one of the primary stress responses in our social nervous system is the people pleaser, right? The fawn response is if I'm sweet and cute, like a baby deer, then no one will ever hurt me, you know, like just be pleasant and imperfect. And so I think this is one thing that I love about creativity and I've seen in my own life and that, and with my clients as well. And I'd love to hear your input on this is the, again, the intersection of the people pleaser and how that can really break your sense of self kind of going all the way back to the beginning of the episode, essentially, (laughs) um, or even if it wasn't like a big experience, just growing up in a hypercritical environment can bring your attention so much on the external that you feel like the internal is almost unrecoverable in a way, like so lost, so long forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that, and so therefore here comes the mask and the people pleaser. That is that survival response. But what I think you spoke to really well is how creativity can be that bridge of finding your way back. And it may just be one layer at a time, really kind of should be one layer at a time. Because if you expose Mm -hmm. yourself too much, too fast, too soon, it can be right. Traumatizing. No, Um, I love this. Yeah. I know exactly where you're going with it. Yeah. I have a real life example that I can give. Um, so like I started doing this shamanic painting process 
like seven, maybe seven years ago. And, um, you know, I was, I was like learning how to do the painting process, but it's a very, it's not like a structured, you know, painting method, you know, it's very open. It allows you to be whatever you're going to be, you know, it's not going to look perfect. And so I was learning this and I was grappling with like the perfectionism that was coming up in me as I was painting these paintings and just being like, Oh, it's not what I want it to look like. And, and it was such a good mirror for me to see my own ability to accept my creations. And so then I, I started painting more and more. I found that I really loved it. It was very therapeutic for me, but I had an art room in my house where I kept all of my paintings. So they were very compartmentalized. And my husband at the time, um, at one point I had painted this painting and I left it out in our common living room area in the basement. And I came home one day and that painting was moved into my art room. And so this is an example of connecting to our feelings, right? Our emotions. And I noticed how much that hurt me, that that painting had been moved into the art room, you know? And I approached him and said, you know, why did you move my painting? Like, it's just you and me going down there. I just had it in there for a few days. And he was like, mm, the eyes just kind of creep me out. And I thought to myself, when he said that, I was like, if the eyes of a painting that I created from my soul creep you out, that's a problem, you know? And, and of course I had problems already in my relationship at the time, but long story short, we ended up going through a very amicable and friendly, I would say divorce. And after we did, I moved into an apartment by myself. And for the first time in my adult life, I lived in a place alone where I adorned all my walls with things that were my expression of me. And I realized how free it felt to get to have my creations in every room of my house. And then as I slowly started introducing people into my home, I was able to witness my fear of rejection that they would walk in and say something like my paintings were weird or whatever. And I noticed that all of the people that I felt safe enough to, to enter into my home loved my paintings. And we're drawn to them and we're like, did you make these? What are they about? Blah, blah, blah. And so that's just a, an example of how my creativity and my relationship with it helped me to move closer to my authentic self by allowing myself to create and then align with my own creations and accept them as beautiful and enough for the right people. Thank you for sharing that story. That was such a great story. I really enjoyed receiving that. You're like, welcome. Oh my gosh, what happens next? <laughs> yeah. Well, what <laughs> happens next is I moved to this apartment and I randomly <laughs> met my now fiance who walked in and literally the first thing he said to me when I met him was, wow, these paintings are amazing. You didn't make these, did you? And I Aww. just thought this is completely the opposite, right? Of what I had yeah. manifested before. Like if, if you love those paintings, you love my soul because that's what those paintings are. And I think I'm glad you, I'm glad you gave us the ending to that story <laughs> or at least the next, next chapter yeah, of the next story, step. because I think also what that shows is, you know, the temporary discomfort of sharing yourself vulnerably. And sometimes someone's not going to like it and they're actually not going to accept it. And they're going to say, not for me, it should be this way. It creeped me out. 
that's, that's a painful thing to receive when it's a yeah. piece from your soul. And sometimes that might happen. But what also will happen is if you keep trying is you're going to find the people that say, wow, that's amazing. I love this. This is beautiful. I'm blown away. And you start to receive that validation externally, not just in your own inner dialogue, because I think like affirmations are great and super important, but also limited. And I think sometimes we can kind of promote hyper independence by just doing affirmations (laughs) instead of actually sharing yourself and saying, no, this is who I am. And giving yourself the opportunity to receive that from somebody else in real life connection with eye contact, with body proximity, and to really receive, dang, I am celebrated for who I am and how that actually not only feels good in the moment and can repair the trauma from like a hypercritical upbringing or sexual trauma or, you know, a lot of different elements here, but can also actually help you create your life in alignment with your fullest potential, which is the name of my podcast <laughs> or yes. fullest potential. So I think that was just, I'm so glad you finished that story. Cause I think that did a great job of showing really the deep power of your willingness to not only devote to practice this, but to practice sharing it. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think, you know, that that's, we don't really talk enough when we're talking about healing ourselves in this way of, of accepting the act of letting go. And I think that that's what holds a lot of people back because I think deep in our souls, we know when things are out of alignment, if we choose to pursue our fullest potential, it will force us to remove some things from our life. And when we start this journey, we don't necessarily know what those things are going to be. And so it's an extremely courageous act to choose yourself because if you choose yourself, your life will change. Yeah. But for the better, so do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think that's such a great point. You know, I, for me, music has been a great tool for committing to a focal point as I'm navigating different er chapters of my life. And there is one song and the title is literally just surrender. And the, the lyrics are essentially surrender over and over and over again. And it's a long song. It's like eight minutes long. It's very slow. (laughs) I mean, it's just like surrender over surrender. (laughs) So anywho, point being is I have a lot of experience practicing this and I still have a long ways to go. But Mm -hmm. what I found is sometimes you actually have to let go of things that you love to create space for things that you love even more. Yeah. And so sometimes let it, it's not just letting go of like quote bad things or unhealthy things. Sometimes it's like, I love this thing so much, but the way that it's actually impacting my life, Mm -hmm. that's the unhealthy part. That's the toxic thing. That's the thing that needs to be let go. And like, for example, I loved teaching yoga so much. I quit teaching school. I taught yoga. I like gave my whole life to that. But the reality of that industry, especially at that time was really hard on my body and the financial insecurity was really hard on my nervous system. So yeah. it's not that like, Oh, I wanted to stop teaching yoga. It was, I can't, the, the reality, the reality of how that's playing into my life isn't working anymore. And I have to be willing to let things go, even if I love it. Right. And that's kind of what you mentioned, the courage of choosing yourself, because it's like, I love me more than this one part of who I am. 
in this one part of my life. Yeah. And, my and I think it's evolved in ways I never could have imagined as a result. Sure. Well, and I'm so glad you did that because clearly it you're becoming better and better. Right. And I think that what I would say to that, like things that you love more, I would say on top of choosing things that you love more, choose things that love you as much as you love them. And yoga wasn't loving you as much as you loved it, right? It wasn't giving you the abundance you needed. It wasn't giving you the peace of mind that you needed from, from practicing that as a profession. Um, and so, yeah, and that's, that's where the self-worth is rebuilt, right? To say that I deserve to have a life of things that love me just as much as I love them. I, I love that. <laughs> I really love that. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. And, yeah. Uh, because yeah, I love a lot of things about life. And I think as we're talking about resilience, your inner compass, your intuition, healing, as we're talking about these things, which is I would say summarized as coming back to yourself and feeling empowered to create your own path and follow your own path. Sometimes it can get confusing when we just go by off of like, quote, what it should be. Well, but I do love this, but it brings me joy in all of these ways. So it's not black or white. It's actually very colorful and maybe even gray, or maybe it's many colors at once. And, and so we can get confused mm-hmm. and therefore a little more stuck in the mind. And so I really love what you said, because it drops you not from the mental evaluation, but into a deep, like visceral, spiritual, emotional evaluation of not only how much do I love it, my output, but how much does it love me and that input in return? Yeah. And going back to the masculine feminine, you know, for those of us, I'm going to speak for women, for those of us, women who have been living with an overly masculine energy when we allow ourselves to say, I'm going to love things that love me as much as I love them, your challenge is going to be to open your heart chakra and receive the love from that thing. Because when you've been so used to outward expression of love, but not the intaking of love, that's going to be the next challenge is you're going to be like, whoa, this thing really does love me like I love it. Can I actually hold the love now? Cause that's scary too. Yeah. Especially when you grow up being the people pleaser and per- perfecting the mask and how to uphold all those little things that keep the details in place. And yes, beautiful. What a wonderful kind of summary <laughs> and synopsis of the entire discussion we had today. Um, it was perfect. Thank you. So we'll kind of transition into this is a bit of an awkward transition, but it's fine. Um, how can people find you? Oh yeah. People <laughs> can find me, uh, at new earth dynasty.com. Right. Uh, yeah, there you can find out about, I, I do something called rapid transformational hypnotherapy. That's the one-on-one work that I do with people. Um, that's for really radically shifting our subconscious beliefs, um, that are causing us to manifest things that we don't want. Um, and then I also have, uh, a hybrid group model intervention that is called empowered revolution. And that is for the woman who is looking to break this cycle of overgiving, overfunctioning, people pleasing, and who's ready to really step into her authenticity and claim her personal power. And so that is, um, like I said, a hybrid model of pre-recorded lessons and activities, as well as live groups online with me each week. So Beautiful. come visit me at New Earth Dynasty. 
And is there any the last words of wisdom you want to leave? It could be a story. It could be a quote, anything you want to leave for, for the audience today. I think what's on my heart today is if you will allow it, love always wins. And in the end, love to me is all that there ever is. And everything else is a lie. So I would encourage people to step into truth and stop living a lie because everyone is deserving of love. Mic drop. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for being on the show today. Uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, you have a deep wealth of knowledge about a lot of different things. So anyone that's listening, I definitely recommend checking her out and working with her even more, learning from her more. She really is a master at what she does. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. And I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure being here. Wasn't that amazing? If you want to stay up to date on more incredible offerings, be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast and find me on Instagram and LinkedIn to join the community of people who are obsessed with reaching their fullest potential. As always, may you walk with grace and courage and we'll see you next time.